Hey, welcome today on Ask a Pastor. I'm joined by Joel Haldeman. Joel pastors our campus in the city, in the Strip District, has done a great job. That campus is uh, growing and exciting things are happening there. So Joel, welcome. Thanks. And today uh, we have some questions that are centered around the Bible specifically that uh, have been asked by a variety of people. So different questions, different people. But uh, really, some of the things that may not interest everybody, but if they're of interest to you, are of great interest. Mm -hmm. And so here's the first question, and that is it's about Bible translations. Can mm -hmm. you talk about the different translations of the Bible? Yeah. Uh, King James, NIV are the two main ones most people know. I know there are many others. Where does translation come from, and why do we need so many? So, uh, so yeah. wh what's your advice to people in terms of the plethora of Bible translations? I think... This is one of those questions that we could spend an hour answering. Um, and you know, there are whole graduate studies and doctoral programs on Bible translation and, um, and all of that. And so, uh, so to be you know, very uh, to the point about it, um, all of the Bible translations that we, that we have today come from um, the oldest manuscripts uh, that is the oldest copies of biblical writings that are in existence. So, so there is no um, whisper down the lane sort of thing where there's a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. Um, we use uh, at Orchard Hill the NIV, um, the ESV is a popular Bible, um, even the King James Version, all, all of those Bibles go back as early as they can to find the earliest manuscripts. Um, and so, uh, yeah, in terms of translation, it, you know, I think all people know that language changes over time. Um, the NIV was translated in uh, the 70s. Uh, it was translated, there was an updated version in, uh, I think, 84, and then 2011. And each of those was a time where there was a reaction to the way language had changed. And so in the 70s, you could use masculine pronouns to refer to all people, and that was like a totally normal thing. Mm -hmm. um, today, you could also say like groovy or something. <laughs> That's they, they, right. they didn't actually say that, but yes. <laughs> um, today, our language has changed, and so there are edits to those translations. And in every time, it's an effort to go back to those original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and to, to put them into the most, uh, to communicate those as best as possible today. Okay. Um, so what's the difference between, say, the NIV and the ESV yeah. for somebody who looks at them and says, what's the difference? Right if those are two of the more popular ones today. So the NIV has a, um, is an attempt to make a Bible translation that's very readable. Um, and so what they'll often do is they'll take, instead of a word at a time and translate that word into its, you know, from its Greek or Hebrew into its English equivalent, it might take a couple words or even a whole thought and translate that into a way that is readable and makes sense. I think the NIV is meant to be written at what, like a fifth grade reading mm -hmm. level or something like that. Um, now, the NIV loses some things in doing that. There's, there's a technicality that's sometimes missing. Um, and so for that reason, you know, when I'm reading a large chunk of scripture at home, I'll read the NIV. If I'm doing uh, sermon prep or study in English, I'm going to use the ESV because the ESV is uh, a translation that attempts to really do more of a word-for-word -word translation, although um, even the ESV do doesn't right, do that. At times you can't because the order in the original language yeah. doesn't work in English sentence order and so on. But yeah, they try to have a equivalent yep. of word for word almost in yeah. terms of if a word appears in Greek, they want a corresponding word in English. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. And so there's this continuum, like there's this thing called an interlinear translation, which literally takes, you know, it has a word in Greek and it has its English equivalent and you can't read it. It doesn't make sense because um, Greek is not, translating Greek or Hebrew into English is not like Spanish into English. They're very different languages. Um, the thought, uh, the sentence structure is so different. Um, and then on the other hand, you have things like the NLT or the message or the NIRV, the R stands for reader. Um, which really just attempts to make something as readable as possible. And, and the message is more of a, I even struggle to call it a translation. It's a, it's a it's, paraphrase, it's a paraphrase really. right? Yeah. Or even a commentary. Yeah, um, yeah so. and I think when that was uh, done, I think Eugene Peterson, who did it, would even have said that. He yeah. wouldn't have claimed that it was a translation. Well, right. one of the other differences there is the difference between a committee versus one person. Yes. Uh, the message was done by basically one person. Yeah. And so anybody who does that, um, rightly or wrongly, will bring some of their biases, predispositions, and doctrinal interpretations into some things. That's right. Whereas a committee, uh, your idea is that you have a lot of scholars looking at it, arguing over the idea of which word or thing yeah. to best represents the text. You, you hopefully eliminate some biases yeah. in, in that as well. Um, so, so if somebody uh, is is at a point of saying, okay, I've just kind of had a Bible, haven't really thought much about translation, what would you say to them about picking a translation um, and, and how should that relate to Orchard Hill's choice to generally use the NIV yeah. for our public worship and, and declaration? I would say the most widely used translations today, um, I guess outside of the Catholic Church, would be the ESV and the NIV. And so I, I would suggest to somebody that that's where you, that's where you start. Um, I think it's helpful to have both, um, one for reading, one for studying. If you're going to have one, I'd probably say have the NIV. Um, a lot of people have a King James version sitting around at home, um, and there's a lot that we could say about that, but I think uh, suffice it to say that King James version was translated in 1611, so we're talking about a translation that's 400 years old. Um, it's going to be hard to read, and there's going to be places where what it communicated 400 years ago is not what it communicates today. Right. Um, and so that's probably not your best choice. And today. most people use the new King James version if they use that today. True. Yeah. Um, so, and this is a little curveball for you. What would you say to somebody who says, well, the King James version is based on a better version of the original language, <laughs> therefore that is the only legitimate current translation because that yeah. I, I do get that from time to time from people usually not people at orchard hill because right they say you use the niv how could you uh that kind of thing but but somebody may hear that at some point what yeah. would you say to them so the backstory to that is that um for 1900 years the church translated made translations based on what was called the byzantine text family mm-hmm. um and basically you know we don't have this is an important point we don't have any of the original letters that were written by Paul, Matthew, Mark. We have copies of those letters, which in some sense is even better. Um, and when we look at those copies, they, there are some that have unique characteristics, and so they're grouped into a family, the way they're written, the style. Um, and so one of those that was uh, most popular, or, or there were the most number of copies, was the Byzantine text type. Um, and that is what is behind the King James Version for 1900 years this is what translations were based on and in the past hundred years i mean this is awesome in the past hundred years there's been an explosion of manuscripts that have Mm -hmm. been found that were so much earlier and of course the earlier we get 
um, the more accurate we're going to get to the mm -hmm. original, um, to the point where we have stuff that's within the same generation that those uh, writings were written in. So, so the difference between the King James Version is the King James Version takes one particular text type, whereas all the other translations today, um, including the ESV, even though the ESV comes from the King James family, sort of, um, uses a multitude of manuscripts, compares them all, looks at the minor differences, and, uh, and tries to understand you know, what, is, what is original. Yeah, so, so just to summarize, uh, what you're basically saying is when somebody makes that argument, they don't understand the, the backstory of all of the texts. Right. Um, or if they do, they've chosen to say we prioritize this because clearly to compare more texts is better Definitely. than saying I just have one. And yeah. it, probably a way to put this in modern uh, kind of equivalence, if somebody says I was at a, an event that happened uh, and you get it from one perspective, mm -hmm. you're more likely to get a good picture if you have 30 perspectives, yeah. or in this case, hundreds of perspectives that point back to the text That's right. and say this is what the text likely is. And what the King James, our only argument is, is we have one text that is better than all the others yeah. um, with no real textual evidence for it that, that people are making. So, so you can refute that with confidence if somebody comes and says that is how yeah. how this works yeah so an important point to make when we're talking about differences between texts we're talking about things that are all so minor That's right. it's the difference between the lord jesus christ in one and jesus christ our lord in another that's right and um and none of them deal with any sort of like serious theological yeah matter. i think i saw one somebody once did an analysis and you're talking about less than uh, a percent, uh, less than like a tenth of a percent or something that's in dispute. Yeah. And it's all issues, like you just said, that aren't doctrinal yep. at the end of the day. So, all right, here's a, a question. Modern perspective on the Bible. The world today takes scripture very literally and out of context from a 21st century perspective. So how do stories in the Bible lose their meaning through millennia and through translation? Additionally, what literary conventions and nuances do we miss out on from the original Hebrew and Greek that would have been clear to ancient readers that are lost on us? I think there's an important point to make here, um, and this is a technicality, and it's that the stories and the text itself does not lose its meaning because that's something that's fixed in history. Um, that happened, that was written down. Um, the deficiency doesn't lie with the story or the medium that it was written in. The deficiency lies with us as the translators um, or us as the interpreters. So I think that's the first place to start in that. Um, I mean, here's the thing that we know we can communicate like we have language and it gives us the ability to communicate and we can communicate to someone that speaks a different language today and we can communicate to someone who speaks a different language and comes from a wildly different culture um, and what we all know is that in those settings we have to be careful we have to pay attention sometimes we have to do a little bit of study in advance um, in order to make sure that we're not miscommunicating. So it's the exact same situation when we talk about Bible translation and, uh, or simply interpretation, that we just gotta be careful. Um, we have to understand that we're coming from a different uh, culture than what it was written in, and, uh, and we just need to be careful. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, if, if the question is like a pragmatic, how do I make sure? I mean, the only answer there is, is a little bit of study. Um, the ESV study Bible, you know, I think is, is one of the better um, study Bibles to have. And, uh, and at the bottom 
half of the page there are notes that deal with um, that deal with the text. And and anytime there's you know a significant cultural difference, it'll call that out and it'll sort of alert the reader to it. Yeah, I'm amazed actually at how good that Bible is. Hmm. Uh, I'll often uh, start with that, look at the text, look at the notes. Yeah. I'll then go do my research on a passage if I'm getting ready to teach and come back after maybe a couple hours and reading, you know, multiple commentaries, doing all kinds of things and say, oh, yeah. that was pretty much the summary That's right. of all that other good work. And so that uh, is, is a great resource to have. Um, so here's something else that, that I would be concerned about when somebody even asks the question, what are we missing mm -hmm. by not knowing the original languages? I don't believe that there are many cases where you have to actually know Hebrew or Greek hmm. to know the teaching of the scripture on that point. Yeah. And as soon as somebody appeals to that and says, well, your NIV and your ESV appear to say this, but I say, mm -hmm. you're probably in, in a bad space. Yeah. Now, if it enhances your understanding, it's a nuance, it's a, it's a, um, a shade of meaning, but if it's reversing what appears to be a clear reading of the NIV or the ESV, or the, especially the two of them together, yeah. I would get concerned That's right. generally that, that you're finding meaning that hasn't been found by scholars for yep. generations uh, who've spent you know, just an incredible amount of time and academic uh, rigor yeah. trying to come to the conclusion of what it says. And then what, what, what happens sometimes is, is we don't like what something teaches, and so we look hmm. for somebody who will appeal to the language because it makes us feel like, well, we found the hidden meaning That's right. that nobody else found yep. rather than saying, no, this is what, what this text says. And, and so Greek and Hebrew can, can help illuminate, it, but it shouldn't change the meaning. Right. And, and so even the, the, the question of what am I missing, I think is, is, um, is probably the wrong question in a sense, as opposed to saying, what is it that I can gain or glean? And, and I certainly love the languages. I mean, I spend, I try to, every time I teach, yeah. look through the language of the, the original language before I get to the text. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm not saying it's, it's superfluous, but what I'm saying is it shouldn't be reversing yep. what you can clearly find. And the great thing that, that is accessible to any person is any person can sit down and, you know, go to, Bible Gateway or wherever and compare 10 different translations and see that, you know, with the exception of the message, you know, being a paraphrase, they're all going to say almost the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's really not a, I think the challenge here is not so much a translation thing because that's, um, in a lot of ways, that's a pretty simple thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's understanding some of the cultural background. Like, a, you know, uh, Jesus riding, riding into, this, into Jerusalem on a donkey. Like, anybody can read that passage and totally understand what the author's meaning to communicate, mm -hmm. that Jesus is coming and people are celebrating him. What a study Bible or just a little bit of study will, will show us is that the practice of riding in on a donkey or, or on a horse, that, that has some, uh, some precedent in the ancient Near East. And so that just uh, helps understand that passage, but it's not necessary to understand that passage. Right. Okay. No, I think that's, that's well put. Mm. Um, so then here's a, another question. What are some ways for someone who's a new Christian or new to faith uh, to learn how to read and understand the Bible? So, so if somebody came to you and said, I'm brand new, just mm -hmm. kind of 
learning my way around the Bible, yeah. what would you say to them to help them understand or start having confidence in reading and, yeah. and understanding the Bible? So my wife and I had a little bit of a disagreement about this one last night because I told her that my answer to that is um, just start reading the Bible. Like if you're new to the Bible, mm-hmm. just sit down, read through the book of John. You're going to get the word straight from Jesus, uh, straight from John, and, and that's going to give you the, the biggest the best way of understanding Jesus for the first time. She sort of pushed back on that. And having just done a Bible study with a brand new believer who didn't have any church or Bible background, um, she said, you know, she referenced a study that she did. Um, It really gave like a snapshot of the Old Testament Mm -hmm. um, as well as looking at a study in the New Testament. And so maybe it is better to do a study that gives you a little bit of that background. Um, We had a friend who's a new believer that read through the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is written for kids, Um, but you could read it very quickly, and it gives you sort of the, you know, 30,000 foot view of scripture. Mm -hmm. And then when you jump in and start reading the book of John, it it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, some context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, What would you recommend? Would you say jump in and start reading or? Well, I don't think there's ever a substitute for jumping in. Right. But what a lot of people do is they'll say, well, I start, I should start at the beginning, start yeah. in Genesis. And by the time you're into Exodus, Leviticus, you're into, this is weird. Mm-hmm. How, how do I understand this? How does this apply to today? And there are some, some challenges in bridging the gap because you are reading something that had an original audience written thousands of years ago in some cases. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, there, there is a, a, a gap to bridge. Um, certainly studying with people who have already um, started to read and understand is a wise thing. I think yeah. that's one of the advantages of like your wife doing a study with somebody. That's a beautiful thing yeah. because they're walking together through it. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes if you're a longer standing Christian, the questions that come are fantastic. I, I love doing it with when my kids were just a little younger because my kids would have no filter in their questions. Yeah. They'd be like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what, what do you mean this happened? And then you would try to explain it. And as you'd explain it, you'd hear yourself saying, oh, that is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, Jesus came to earth and died for sin. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, that rolls off a Christian's tongue very easily. But mm. the reality is that's an incredibly complex and earth-shattering statement if you believe it. That's right. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I'm not sure that I have a great answer to that other than to say keep it simple. And what I mean by that is, is I think asking the, the three questions, uh, these are not original to me, and that is what does it say? Mm-hmm. Um, what did it mean? Hmm. What does it mean? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you just simply look at it and say, okay, what does this actually say? You brought up the donkey earlier. Well, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It means that he came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Yeah. Uh, what did it mean? Well, it, he, was, he was communicating something mm-hmm. in that culture, yeah. in that day, about uh, kingdom and about rule and about um, what his yeah. intentions were. Yeah. Um, And so you can get closer to that. That's where maybe a study Bible helps or something like that. And then what does it mean? Okay, what does that imply to people today to say that is who Jesus is? And sometimes I think we 
uh, anybody can overcomplicate something rather mm -hmm. than simply saying, what are those three questions? That's Here's right. a little short section of the Bible. Let me read this and do my best to answer those questions. Certainly, you could write books on those things, but those questions simply answered really do help you yeah. say, okay, I, I think I have an understanding of this. And, and it's that bridge from what did it mean to what does it mean that often is the important bridge yeah. to say, okay, this is what it meant here. This is what it means today. Yeah. I was working on, um, uh, when we were doing our, our series on John this fall, uh, John 13, uh, which is uh, the story of Jesus washing the feet. And here's a great example. So Jesus says, I want you to do, uh, take this as an example and wash one another's feet. Hmm. Uh, so Jesus washed the disciples' feet. So what did he do? He washed their feet. Mm -hmm. well, you know, what happened? What does it mean, or what did it mean? It meant Jesus was telling his disciples to serve. Yeah. And in that culture, washing feet was a way to serve people. It was mm -hmm. a way to take a lower position. And so almost no interpreters today would say, oh, you should literally wash people's feet. Yeah. It'd be a little weird. You <laughs> wear, you know, closed shoes That's and right. just say, hey, take off your shoes. I, I want to wash your feet. Uh, but it still means something today. Mm -hmm. It means what is the cultural equivalent of selfless service? What is it that you say, um, I can set aside my status in order mm -hmm. to serve other people in my life, in the normal flow of my life? Um, here's another example. Um, I think it's what Romans 16, 16 says, uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. Right. Um, <laughs> it's a command. Yeah. Uh, and so some people read that and they try to lay one on you and you're like, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, but, but it still has a, a meaning today. That's right. In that it's talking about a warm, affectionate greeting yep. and being welcoming of everyone who comes into your fellowship and and is part of your life. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so some of them are easy like that. Some of them are harder. That's right. Uh, but but you know intuitively when the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss that it doesn't mean well now that you know I believe in Jesus I I should greet everyone with a kiss on the lips. That's right. Um, and, and so, but, but those three questions help you get to that very yeah. quickly. Yeah. Now, I think actually the neat thing just about that specific example is that what that shows us is that the translators aren't doing the interpretive work for us. That's right. Because a translator could come along and say, you know, greet one another with a firm handshake and a warm hug. That's right. They leave in the holy kiss. And so it's left to the English speakers to do that interpretive work of does this is this a first century thing or um, or does this you know apply as it is today right. um, which I think should give confidence to all people that are reading the Bible that what they hold in their hands is unbelievably close to the original text and yeah. and they can have you know total confidence that they are reading the Word of God yeah which is an incredible thing yeah. The, the claim that, that what you hold in your hands is God's way of revealing himself to us yeah. is worth the effort mm -hmm. to try to understand and, and mine the, the things that are there for us. So yeah. thank you, Joel. Sure. Thank you for spending part of your day uh, with us here today. And uh, if you have questions, you can send them to askapastor at orchardhillchurch.com. We'll be happy to address them in the coming episodes.